Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat, a show where I interview business executives, talent development professionals, and thought leaders to find out what has been successful and challenging in the world of talent development. My objective is to share ideas, valuable lessons, tools, advice, and trends. My hope is that all of this will ultimately help you, the listener, expand your knowledge, grow your career, and accelerate your success as a talent development professional. Michael, welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. Happy to be here, my friend. Happy that we've got an audience uh, listening in as well. So thanks to everybody who's live with us here on the LinkedIn Live Show. It's really cool. Yeah, thank you. We are recording this live on LinkedIn. And you've been on the podcast before. Uh, I had you on a few months ago. Uh, and of course, you spoke at my conference, the Talent Development Think Tank, just about three weeks ago. I know. And- Congratulations on that. That was a huge <laughs> success. Thank you so much, in, in part because of you and all the great speakers we had on the team. Yeah. It was an amazing experience. I'm still kind of riding high from that. And you know, for anybody that doesn't know you, they can go back to the previous episode we did where you told a lot of your backstory and how you wrote uh, your sensation, the coaching habit, as well as your other books and things you've done. Um, so today, we're going to dive into the new book, uh, The Advice Trap. But I do want to start with that conference because it was a big hit. It was amazing from beginning to end uh, for two days. And we had so many great speakers and facilitators there. And you were one of the few that I hadn't really seen before, but I knew you were going to be good. And you just knocked my socks off, just killed it with the closing keynote. And I want to say to you now that we finally get a chance to talk again since the event, thank you for coming and just crushing it. Yeah. You so are, let me ask you this. I, yeah. without, this is not meant to be stroking my ego, but what do you think particularly landed or what did I do that was something that people listening in can go, if I'm speaking or I'm facilitating or I'm closing an event, I could take away and learn from that. I mean, I don't mind what you say one way or the other, but what would yeah. you pass on to others as that was powerful because? I think it's a great question. And I think it's something that we can all benefit from, especially anybody listening, watching, who facilitates workshops and training and development at all. You know, if I think about your keynote, um, there are three things that I would take it down, uh, you know, boil it down to. Number one is preparation. It was very clear that you had practiced that keynote. And I tell me if I'm wrong, but many times like you had it down, like, you knew yeah. exactly. And I'm not just talking about like the information, but every little minutia moment and how to kind of get people laughing, get them thinking about what's coming next. Uh, it was very clear that you had studied, you had practiced and that you were very well prepared. Number two 
you brought a lot of energy. And I think people come to these things looking for energy. Um, there are some great speakers that get by on just knowledge or whatever it is. But a lot of times, like people want, I think they get energy from the speaker. And right. you and I as speakers often get energy from the audience. So we yeah. want to bring that energy, you brought a lot of that. And number three is something that uh, was well in line with what I wanted to create with, create with the Talent Development Think Tank, which is that you made it highly engaging and interactive. Yeah. It was not just let's listen to Michael talk for 60 minutes about what he knows about coaching. And then right. let's go back and see if we can apply it. No, from the very first moment you had people up talking to each other, interacting, and that lasted for 10 minutes. The energy in the room was extremely high. And then you had other interactions and people actually coaching each other throughout the, the experience. And that only not only created people learning um, because I'm someone who runs experiential learning workshops. So I believe strongly in the power of experiential learning um, but people were forming bonds, like they were hugging, they were crying. I mean, there you do not yeah. see that during any other keynotes. So those are the, my three keys to success and why I think your, yours was one of the best keynotes I've ever seen. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I'm going to pick up on the piece of the preparation for it. Yeah. And I'm going to just point in a slightly different direction because it is true that that is a well-honed experience. Like I've done that a fair number of times and I've kind of polished it so I know what lands and I know where the pauses are, but it's, it's a piece beyond knowing your script. Cause one of the ways people can hear that is know your, know your script. And that's, mm. that's part of the journey, but actually it, there's a way that you've got to get beyond the script to knowing the performance in your bones and knowing the principles of the performance. Because for me, the piece that allows me to have impact as a keynote is no matter what happens in my interaction with the audience, I'm, I probably know how to manage it through my mm. stagecraft, like where right. I stand and how I interact and how I give space to some of the ideas and how I use the flip chart rather than the slides. I think we've all seen keynote speakers where they're like, you're, you're giving us your, your speech. Right. And it doesn't matter if, you know, Godzilla invades the room you're like, I'm going to carry on with the speech. <laughs> Whereas yeah. for me, I'm like, if Godzilla is in the room, I'm like, great, we're going to use Godzilla because we can play with that. That's a metaphor for something or that's a disruption that's useful. So it's about knowing your stuff and paradoxically being very present to what's happening right in the room and being able mm -hmm. to meet that and use that and incorporate that into the experience. Yeah, it's so important. It also makes me think of earlier that day, or sorry, the day before, uh, your friend Liz Weissman gave the, the closing keynote on the first day about multipliers. And, and she kind of has a prepared speech. I think she altered it a little bit for this experience. So she and I had a prep call and we talked about who the audience was and what they wanted to get out of it. But one of my favorite moments from her talk, uh, I don't think you were in the room for that one, but when uh, one of our participants, uh, John Hernandez, who's become a friend of mine, uh, was in the front row and mentioned something from her book about taking the pen away from somebody, how managers do that often when they're just sharing all their ideas. And we're going to get into this topic, right? And she stopped and metaphorically grabbed a, a pen from me and went on this riff about that that was clearly not prepared. And it was fantastic and just painted a great picture of what it means to be oh, a multiplier and how people accidentally diminish their people. It was my favorite part. Well, Liz Wiseman, total legend, right? Yes. Well, speaking of Liz Wiseman, I actually messaged her yesterday and I said, hey, I'm interviewing Michael tomorrow for the podcast, any questions you think I should ask? And she actually sent me a list of questions to ask oh, you. So. No, that's awesome and terrifying. <laughs> at the same time. 
So we better get into it. Um, All right. You, let's start with your new book. I mean, you had the you've written books before. The Coaching Habit was a big sensation. We talked about that uh, in the last interview, and now you've got this new book, The Advice Trap, coming out on yeah. uh, February 29th, I believe. Uh, so yep. tell us about the new book. How did this come about? Why did you write it? I know yeah. that writing a book is a big challenge, um, but there's many rewards as well. Can be, yeah. So the coaching habit has been this amazing and delightful and unexpected success, you know, close to three quarters of a million copies out there in the world. And, you know, which is roughly 740,000 copies more than you'd ever expect, even on your good days. So I'm like, yeah. great. And there's been people in the world who picked up the coaching habit and have loved it and have used it right away. They're like, I get the seven questions. I get the principles. I get staying curious. And they write me cool emails. And I'm like, thank you. A, for reading the book, B, for using the book, C, for right, reaching out and telling me that it's a good book and writing a nice blurb on Amazon or whatever it might be. There's also a whole bunch of people who go, I don't get your book. <laughs> or I do get your book. I like it, but I can't, I can't seemingly change my behavior. So I stop giving as much as advice as I do, and I stay curious a little bit longer because that's the call to action in that first book. Can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving? a little bit more slowly. And lots of people find that difficult. So I was like, why is that? Why is that so hard? Because, you know, I'm just asking you to stay curious a little bit longer, not for a week or a month, just like three minutes. How, how hard is that? It turns out that that's hard for some people. It's hard for most people. And with the advice trap, I really wanted to get into the, all right, why is this so difficult? Why is this so hard? And it turns out that it's not, like learning how to use your, your latest phone where, you know, you fiddle around with it and you watch a couple of videos on YouTube going, how do I, you know, upload the X phone 12 or whatever it is that you've got. Right. But it actually is, is more of a profound challenge to how you show up in the world because it's asking you to step away from stuff that feeds who you are at the moment, the status, the control, the certainty, the authority that comes with going, I've got answers for you, not to mention years of practice into a different way of leading, a leadership that's more based on humility and being humble, on a mindfulness, a kind of awareness of what's going on and, and an empathy, a kind of connection with that other person. So what this book is about, you know, if the first book is the, the theme is stay curious longer, the second book, the theme is tame your advice monster, which is here's what you need to do to fundamentally shift your behavior so that you can use those questions and those tools from the first book. If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world and things are changing so fast it's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks, and on to the episode.
Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I read The Coaching Habit and one of my biggest takeaways was that idea of staying curious longer and taming the advice monster. Because we all, especially the longer we go and the more knowledge we accumulate, we want to help people and we want to give them advice. But for the benefit of people that haven't read that, you know, what does that do to people? What's the, the danger of jumping to advice too soon? Well, there's a number of dangers. The first two are just about inefficiency. And so, and so they're connected. So when you leap in too soon, too fast, too quickly to, to give advice, and let's face it, we do this all the time. Because, you know, as soon as somebody starts talking, our advice monster kind of looms up out of the dark and goes, oh, I'm going to add some value to this conversation because right. I've got some ideas. Even though I don't really know what's going on or the context or the people involved or the technical specifications, even though I don't have any of that, yeah, I think I could tell you some ideas. So when that happens, the first two things that go wrong is, first of all, you're often busy trying to solve the wrong problem because you fall into this kind of mistaken belief that the first challenge that shows up is the real challenge. And honestly, it's not. Mm -hmm. It barely is. But let's say miraculously you somehow figured out what the real challenge is. The second and related issue is that your advice actually isn't nearly as good as you think it is. Mm. So most likely you're offering up slightly crappy advice to solve the wrong problem. So you can guess how that's fundamentally an issue in terms of your life, whether it's at work or elsewhere, which is like, okay, I'm spending a whole bunch of time offering up not very good solutions to solve things that aren't really the real thing problem that we've got going on here. Right. The third issue goes deeper, cuts a little deeper around this, and it, it diminishes both parts of the conversation. If somebody is on the receiving end of advice all the time, what they're getting a message is, is that they're not good enough to fix it, solve it, figure this out themselves. So you have a steady diminishing of that sense of confidence and competence and autonomy that you want in people. You know, if you're a leader, if you're committed to talent development and you know, people listening to this podcast and this conversation definitely are, actually that whole leaping in to try and help people actually has the opposite effect. It diminishes them. But it just doesn't diminish them. It diminishes you as well. Because when you're in that place of giving advice, uh, you know, put aside the fact that you're disempowering people and put aside the fact that you're becoming a bottleneck, the fact that you carry that weight of going, oh, I've got to be the person with the answers, with the solutions, who can save the day and save the person, that is exhausting and it's frustrating and it's kind of overwhelming at the same time. I mean, the caveat we've got to put to all of this, Andy, is to say, look, there's nothing wrong with advice itself. You yeah, know, yeah. the way life works is through an exchange of advice. So let's not think that advice itself is bad. What we're really trying to get to is the advice trap, which is when advice giving is your default response. And to be fair, that is true for many of us much of the time. I think it's healthy to, to check yourself. And and I've been doing that, not just since the book, but especially since your keynote uh, at the think tank. And, you know, multiple times then people have brought situations to me and uh, I kind of stopped myself I'm like, oh, I know what I think you should do. But I'm like, listen, Michael Bungay-Stanier says that you should not jump to advice. And I find that a lot of times they'll say, no, 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 but I want your advice. And I wanted to ask you about the balance there, but I think it's great to kind of ask their permission first, right? Before yeah. jumping right to advice. Because and to your point, they may not even want it sometimes. They might just want to vent. 
um, or there may be some deeper issue that you're not even aware of until you dig deeper for it. So if somebody comes to you and goes, hey, Andy, how do I? You know, that's the most explicit version of advice asking you can get. How do I? I have a script that I want to offer up to you that might be helpful. It might be helpful for the people listening in because you want to be helpful. You don't want them to leave the conversation without some progress on whatever the challenges that they're doing. But you also want to break their dependency on coming to you for the answer because even though they're like, I want the advice from you, that may not actually be the bigger win because if you're a leader who's going, I'm actually trying to encourage people to figure some stuff out themselves and have a sense of confidence and have a sense of autonomy and have a sense of self-sufficiency, then it doesn't matter that they go, no, no, I want you to tell me the advice. You're like, I don't care. That's not how we're going to roll around here. I'm going to help you figure this stuff out yourself. Yeah. At the same time, you don't want to abandon them. So they're like, hey, my boss is useless because I just, she gives me nothing. So what's the fine line? So here's my script. Andy zooms me up here and goes, Michael, I got you. It's brilliant. And you are so smart and you are so clever and you are so good looking. You're the perfect person to give me some advice around here. And of course, my advice monster is going, oh yeah, you're right. Michael is smart and good looking and clever, so clever, so wise. Right. Should be perfect. And he goes, here's my problem. I've got a problem with X. What do you think I should do? And I'm like, oh, oh, I can feel the pulling me forward to share value and add value and be the smart person in this conversation. Yeah. My script. I go, Andy, that is a great question. And I'll make sure that we get this solved. I have some ideas on how to solve this, as you'd expect from a man as good looking and as wise as me. But before I give you my answer, which I will give you, I'm curious to know, because I know you've thought about it, what, what ideas do you already have? So give me one idea that you've already come up with. And Andy will tell me. And I will nod my head and I'll look interested. You know, <laughs> whether or not I am, but I'm going to look interested. Right. And then I'm not going to judge it or analyze it or dismiss it or even go, it's brilliant. I'm going to go, that's, that's great. What else could you do? And I'll nod my head and look interested. And I'll go, great, what else could you do? And then at a certain point, I'll go, okay, this is fantastic. Is there anything else you could do? And Andy was like, no, I'm, I'm tapped out. And I'm like, yeah. this is great. So you've, got, you've already got four or five options you came up with by yourself. So that's brilliant. Let me give you one or two additional thoughts that your ideas have made me think of. Mm. So what you see me doing is going, look, I'm going to be more coach-like in this three-minute conversation. I'm going to acknowledge what's going on. I'm going to reassure him that I've got his back. And I'm not going to let, let him leave the conversation before he's got some ideas on how to go forward with this. But I'm not going to just spoon feed him my answer because I don't even know what the problem is. And right. I don't know what the best challenge is. I'm going to get you to tell me what you think your ideas are. And what that means is that then when I add my own ideas, they're the ideas that you haven't thought of, you didn't consider, that I get to use my expertise to go, it's a much more precise useful diagnostic and solution than me just riffing off an issue that I don't even fully understand. Right. And and I would imagine a lot of times they're going to come up with the same idea and then you can just say, those are great ideas. I was thinking the same thing. Like I'm, now to, I'm acknowledging. You don't even need to tell them you were thinking the same thing because they just assume you were thinking the same thing. Mm. And what's brilliant about that is when they come up with a whole bunch of good ideas that you hadn't thought of, they're going to give you the credit for all of those plus the one or two 
that you add in. So ironically, by delaying giving advice, you end up sounding smarter. Well, that's why I brought you on. And, you know, I, ha- I knew all this stuff already. I just wanted to let you talk about it, let you write the book. You Genius. Know, yeah, I like <laughs> give you the opportunity. Well, the other thing I was thinking there too, is that when someone comes to your advice and you give them that, that answer right away, they have one answer and it's kind of like, give or, you know, take it or leave it. And there's ego involved. If they don't take it, it's like, I gave this guy my advice. He wouldn't Definitely. take it versus one or two of seven options that they can now consider. Well, that, I mean, that, that insight around ownership is really important because as you all know, if you come up with the idea yourself versus having your boss suggest the idea, which one are you more likely to feel engaged with? Which one are you more likely to want to do? Which one do you have more buy-in with? What's the one you came up with by yourself? You know, I'm not sure who it was. Was it some ancient philosopher who ran, you know, the worst leaders are the ones who lead from the front. The best leaders are the ones who lead from the back, but really the best leaders are the ones who people go, we did it all ourselves. And that's kind of what you're doing here. You're like, no, I'm leading you. You just don't even know how I'm facilitating this to make this really work. You know, it's amazing. I didn't even realize when we set it up and had, and I know you and Liz were friends and we had Liz coming to speak at the think tank and then you coming to speak as well, how much your research and your your teachings and your books jive. And one of the questions we got when I posted about this on LinkedIn yesterday was from uh, Heather Swensgard, who was at the Talent Development Think Tank, who's you basically asked, how do the advice traps um, that we fall into align with the accidental diminishers from the Multipliers book? And it seems like they align very well. You think about the idea guy and you know jumping and, and just totally. like the rescuer, all those things. Totally. Yeah, I mean, the idea guy is very much the diminisher you know, I talk about these three three personas of the advice monster. So we've all got the advice monster, but there are three different personas. Tell it, save it, control it. So tell it, I think, probably corresponds to the idea guy, which is like, no, no, I'm trying to be really helpful here. And in fact, what's happening is that sense of sucking the oxygen out of the room. Because yep. you're saying, actually, my ideas are always better than your ideas. My ideas are the ones that will win. My ideas will always trump your ideas. So they accidentally diminish. The save it advice monster is definitely connected to the rescuer, which is, oh, no, let me jump in and keep you all safe and keep you all protected and keep you all unable to learn and grow because, you know, I've wrapped you in cotton wool. <laughs> right. And then the third one, you can make the better connection than I could. You know, uh, Liz's diminished work better than I do. The sure. third one is around the controller. And that's that sense of, you know, you've always got your fingers in all the pies. You don't let in the kind of the chaos and the mess and the possibilities and the opportunities of the future and other people's perspectives. You kind of keep a tight wrap on things to make sure that everything is known all the time. Mm-hmm. Is there a corresponding diminisher that comes to mind for you around oh. that? Well, if you look at Liz's research and you go to the the five traits or tendencies of diminishers, the number one most common tendency of a diminisher is the micromanager. And nobody likes working for a micromanager. And yet so many people fall into that trap because they're afraid of yeah. what might happen if they're not involved. It's perfect. So I think that there you have that link with Liz's research. And of course, part of the differences between Liz and my stuff is Liz actually does amazing research and then brings it to life in her books. And I surf on other people's amazing research and go, see, other people have figured this out. Well, you know, there's value in doing both. Uh, you know, everybody loves Malcolm Gladwell and his books. And it seems like he just surfs on everybody else's research and turns oh, it 
turns it into something that we all love reading, right? I once did an interview with one of the academics that Gladwell's idea he'd taken and kind of popularized in one of his books. It was the idea around, it was about how Picasso, Picasso's early works are more valuable than his later works as he goes through his different phases. But yeah. Matisse, because he had a pink version and then a blue phase and then another phase and right. a cubist phase, Whereas Matisse basically painted the same thing over and over and over again. It was like either apples or Mont Saint-Victoire, a mountain. And actually his paintings became more and more valuable as he became more masterful in a single domain. Mm. Anyway, I was like, I read the, the Gladwell book and I went, that's interesting. And I looked up the researcher he was surfing her off or referencing. Anyway, this researcher was not happy. <laughs> like Gladwell's like a bazillionaire and well-known everywhere and I'm an obscure <laughs> professor. But it's also true that some people are translators and other people are the ones who kind of make the, the primary connections. Yeah. Liz, we, Liz happens to be brilliant at both. Absolutely. absolutely. We, we need all those things. And uh, I was I there was in there the room while, while she, was she was seeking your help at the Think Tank, right? And and she's working on her new book. And thank is, you. He's got the so good. I, I mean, know. I've had a chance to see the the research that she's been doing, and she's you know she's different from me in her creative process because my process is I I write and I write and I rewrite a lot, and I take some ideas and it's through the rewriting they become polished and lean and useful. Liz works and reworks the research, and I think that what happens is she gets her research in such a rigorous place and so elegant that then it's basically a question of just kind of laying it down and it becomes the book. Yeah, it makes sense. But I also saw in that room proof that, you know, everybody has their strengths and their things where they can use help. And hers is clearly on the research and finding things yeah. that are going to be impactful for us, even naming them, right, in a way that really resonate with us. And yet she seemed like she wanted help with how do I formulate this in a way that people can really grasp onto and really get it and she was singing your praises as, you know, that you have this native genius in formulating books and putting them in a way and helping others do the same where they're really engaging and there's something that people really want to read. And I saw that with The Coaching Habit. I'm sure you have that with this book as well. Yeah. Well, when we see Liz's new book coming out, whenever that is, and you know, everybody listening, it's like, keep an eye out for it because the research is really compelling. I think we can say that Liz, Liz will take all the credit for all the good ideas because she should, they'll be hers. And if there's anything that sounds too glib or too slick, I probably came up with that. So. <laughs> well, speaking of Liz, one of the questions she asked or she sent to me to ask you yeah. was, how does Michael keep himself from giving advice about not giving advice? This is a real challenge for anyone who has been designated a thought leader on a topic. Yeah. The first piece I would keep saying about it is there's nothing wrong with advice. You know, yeah. it's the default response to giving advice. The... Second piece I do is I will often, because, you know, with this new book coming out, I'm doing quite a lot of podcast interviews and so being asked my opinion a lot. Right. But in many of them, I turn the table and I get the host to do a bunch of the talking and I will try and engage them in an opinion. So there is a constant awareness that I do try and hold, which is around, okay, so people actually want to hear my opinion about a bunch of stuff. Sure. And I don't want to, I don't want to not, be helpful in that way. I also want the medium to be the message. So if I'm preaching balance in advice with inquiry, I want to try and role model that in the conversations that I have. 
And then thirdly, I also want people to know that I have a skeptical view of my own expertise. So I will offer up opinions and offer up advice, but also often I will frame it as, uh, well, he's my best guess, but you know, I'm just one man with one perspective and it you know, may or may not be right. So I think there's also a way of diminishing the advice isn't quite right, but certainly kind of slightly downgrading it. So people have a choice as to go, is it right? Is it not right? And choose to accept it or, or not. I love that approach. And, uh, you know, we started off this interview with you turning the tables and asking me a question, which of course, you know, was a great way for me exactly. to engage, sing your praises without you doing it yourself, but also get to, you know, kind of show off my own knowledge and expertise on, you know, what makes a great talk that sort of thing. Right. Uh, I study it as well. And, uh, you know, yours, of course, was fantastic. All the stuff you do. This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting organizations with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. And we're also proud to be providing tons of great content and inspiration to you and everyone out there during troubled times. You can go to advantageperformance.com to find any of our weekly webinars, insights, white papers, and blogs we've been putting out to help you survive and thrive during challenging times. That website again is advantageperformance.com. And now back to the show. When I get back to the book, you know, we talked about the advice monster, the idea of remaining curious and, you know, uncovering the real challenge, because if you give advice too soon, you might miss it. What does it mean? I know you talk in the book as well about sealing the exits. What does it mean to seal the exits? So what we're talking about there is neuroscience and just like, okay, I'm no neuroscience expert, but I've read a bunch and I know just enough to be dangerous. I probably know a little bit more than that. And here's the compelling insight that I think is so helpful just to understand any time you're interacting with another human being. So this is whether it's a one-to-one conversation or you're in a team meeting or you're presenting, or even if you're in a podcast, you know, in, in this conversation, people's brains, your brain, my brain, everybody's brain, five times a second is scanning the environment going, is it safe here or is it dangerous? Safe or dangerous, safe or dangerous. It's unconscious. It's a little lizard brain, that little survival piece, our amygdala going, yes, safe or dangerous. Because the brain's number one rule, the number one purpose is to survive. You know, it's like be efficient and survive. That's it. So its job is to make sure that you don't kill yourself. (laughs) So that's what it's doing. And it can't do that on a conscious level the whole time, because that would be, but it's at that kind of deep unconscious level. So it would be helpful to understand what are the criteria that make a situation safe for your brain. And in the book, I talk about it briefly in the coaching habit, and then we expand it a bit in the advice trap. We get into this whole concept of TERRA, T-E-R-A, which is an acronym for the four key drivers that make a situation safe for the brain. A terror stands for tribe expectation, rank, 
and autonomy. Tribe, expectation, rank, and autonomy. So let me go through those really quickly. So tribe, the brain is basically asking, are you with me or are you against me? Are you with me or are you against me? Expectation, the brain is going, do I know what's about to happen or do I not know? Rank, the brain is asking, are you, are you more important than me or am I more important than you? Who's most important here? And autonomy, the brain is going, do I get any say in this or are you making all the choices for me? Now, the more tribiness you feel, the, the clearer the expectations, the higher the rank, and the more certain around or certainty around autonomy, the safer you feel. And when you feel safe, you more fully engage. Because when you're under threat, this is kind of you move into fight or flight mode, your shoulders go up, you hold your breath, oxygen drains from your prefrontal cortex. You're just not as smart. You're not as engaged. You're not as generous. You're not as able to see the nuances and the ambiguities. When you feel safe, you keep breathing, your shoulders drop, your brain is full of oxygen, you get to see the best in people, assume positive intent, show up with nuanced, smart ideas. So it's really helpful if you can create a safe experience for people, be it a podcast host or a team manager or just a regular conversation with a regular person. So part of what sealing the exits is, is about going, how do you use neuroscience to help you make any interaction, any conversation feel safer so people are more engaged. So let me ask you a question, Andy. Okay. Tribiness. You get the concept. It's like, how do you make it feel that people are like, you're with me rather than against me? You know, we're in this together rather than you versus me. When you think back to the leadership think tank and the conference that you and Bennett put on, what are some of the things that you did to increase the sense of tribiness? Oh, I appreciate that question. I think the couple of the biggest things we did were, uh, number one, we made it seem or we we painted a picture of an event that was going to be interactive where people are going to be not just listening, but contributing. So they felt like they they really needed to come in and be ready to contribute. Number mm-hmm. two, and I think this is the biggest, is that we created a sense of community and connection. Right off yeah. the bat, You know, we invited people in our network. We made personal invitations. I actually sent a personal video to almost everybody who bought a ticket to the think tank. And I think it created this idea of connection and community. And when we were there, we saw people forming real relationships. And it was more about friendship and contribution and learning than jockeying to see, well, who's the smartest person in the room? Or am I someone going to catch me not really paying attention or not engaging or whatever it was? It was people supporting each other. And it was just, a phenomenal experience because it was about, for me, personal connection yeah. and community. And what you find is it's actually that level of specific tactics that drive that interaction. That's where the magic starts to happen. So the fact that, you know, we're all wearing name tags, the fact mm-hmm. that how interactive it was, the fact that you got people up and moving, the fact that you got people to shoot video testimonials, all of these are a way of going, I feel like it's more of a tribiness experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you did that at scale in a conference, but in a one-to-one conversation with somebody, you can increase the sense of tribiness. It can be everything from little stuff like doing this video, what people watching it will notice is that I'm maintaining eye contact. The reason is I'm looking at my camera, which is here, right up the top there. Actually, where Andy is, is kind of down here. That's where his image appears on my screen. 
Mm. But what I'm doing is rather than looking at Andy, which is actually what I'm naturally inclined to do because I'm like, I feel like I'm maintaining eye contact with Andy. Yeah. But you'll notice that now as I do that and I'm looking at Andy, I mean, it's actually a bit weird because now I'm not actually connected with the people watching the screen. Right. So what I do, and it's a bit annoying and a bit uncomfortable because I can't actually see Andy directly anymore. But what I find it's worth doing is I go, look, I'm looking at the camera here mm-hmm. because now you get that sense of I'm with you rather than I'm kind of with you, but not really. And I'm doing that because this increases the sense of tribiness between me and everybody listening and watching mm-hmm. this. And now they're going, I'm more likely to be stay engaged in this conversation rather than backing away from this conversation. Right. So it's all these little things that make the odds of people staying connected and engaged in your conversation with you just a little bit better which means that you're just likely to be a little more efficient and a little more effective and a little more appreciated, which over time pays off in terms of big wins. Oh, that is so good. So powerful. And I, like you, have you know just studied a little bit of neuroscience and psychology. And I think it's cool that you mentioned tribiness. I've read the book Tribes by Sebastian Younger. I don't know if you've read that book. Yeah. yeah. But the biggest takeaway from that, it's, it's a short one, but powerful, is that you know, people empirically value and need human connection and need to be part of something, right? No, throughout evolution and out all of time, other than the last 50 to 100 years, people have not been able to survive on their own. Right. And so people need, you know, psychologically, we have a need to be part of something and to have human connection. That's why right. that eye contact is so important. That's why, you know, in certain right. cultures, I believe, it's not polite to, you have to make eye contact when you cheer drinks, right? And this goes back to like Viking days of like, they could grab their sword and cut your head off if you're not paying attention, right? Um, But it's all part of that. Like, how do we build trust Mm -hmm. and build that sense of connection and community? And whether people say they're extroverted, introverted, shy, outgoing, whatever it is, we all need human connection. And, you know, I was trying to create that at the conference. And what you're saying I'm hearing is, to try to create that safety and that human connection in every interaction. So when you're having that one-on-one coaching conversation, not be multitasking, doing other things, but actually yeah. give them your yeah. attention and seal the exits. Yeah. And, and basically in the advice trap book, there's kind of deeper insight around tribe expectation, rank and autonomy, and a list of different tactics that people can use around that. So listen, one thing that makes me think of is another question I wanted to ask you. Uh, later in your book, uh, in The Advice Trap, you talk about uh, leadership and coaching and you talk about vulnerability. And mm-hmm. that's something that I think is getting increasingly more valuable and powerful for leaders to be able to leverage vulnerability, something they would never do in the past. Yeah. So can you talk about your perspective on that? Why is vulnerability? How does that play into all of this? The doorway I come at this is around empowerment. So if I say to the people listening, the people committed to talent development who are here in leadership, I go, what do you think? Empowerment, good thing or a bad thing? I'm pretty sure I'm going to get like 98.5% of people going empowerment is a good thing. And the remaining 1.5% didn't understand the question. And if they did understand the question, they'd also go, no, empowerment is is a good thing. Yeah. They're like, okay, so how how do you do empowerment? How does that work? And... Empowerment in theory is easy. You're like, no, go for it. Take what you want and be the person you want to be. In actuality, empowerment means a giving up of power and a giving up of control and enabling the other person to pick that up and cloak themselves in that. And it turns out that empowerment in practice is actually quite difficult because most of us really love 
the power and the control and the privilege that we have. You right. know, whether where some of us are born to it, like you know, Andy, you and me were tall white dudes, and that just gives us a whole bunch of advantages right away. Right. Other people have worked up to a way of going. I've earned it through diligence and resilience and persistence and the like. But as you have this and you look to people around you that you're looking to lead and influence, you're like, the way I invite them up is I step out of the way and I give them some of the tools that I currently own and have. And empowerment is an act of vulnerability, which is you're like saying, okay, I'm willing to be a bit naked, be a bit vulnerable as a commitment to serve others and invite them in. You know, Robert Greenleaf, I think in the 70s, wrote a book called Servant Leadership. And it's it's not what you'd call a snappy read. <laughs> it's a bit long. And it's profound because of that idea, which is your job as a leader is to be in service to them. And you measure that by having them be better than when you started working with them. And that's a pretty powerful ex- insight around how to show up as a leader. Yeah. It's so powerful. And you made me think of, you know, I facilitate workshops at companies all over the world. And I've studied this, especially the multipliers concepts. And we run a program based on Liz's book and research. And, uh, you know, we talk about, I mentioned earlier that the top trait of, of diminishers is the micromanager, you know, someone that mm-hmm. believes they need to be involved in everything. You know, I often kind of go off on a tangent when I'm running this to talk about, you know, why do you think people do this? And for me, it always goes back to fear, right? Fear that either someone else is going to fail and it's going to reflect poorly on you and you might lose your job. Or the other side is you develop people, they do well. What if I help them so much they're actually better than me and people go, oh, what do we need Michael anymore for? Or what do we need Andy anymore for? You know, Michael has all the great knowledge. Like, let's just get rid of him. And there's so much fear around that. But like like what you're saying, are we really, were you willing to empower them and be vulnerable and give that away and help develop people? More often than not, you're going to be rewarded for that. Yeah. I mean, this is research backs that up. And, you know, you'll see that in her new book as well. That's exactly right. I mean, that kind of comes back to the three advice monsters, tell it, save it, and control it. Mm. They are monsters that are about protecting kind of your ego and giving up on that kind of status that's connected to all three of those things is a act of vulnerability, is a fearful act, and the rewards can outweigh the risks. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but sometimes in in life to be successful, you got to take a risk. You know, I have plenty of other questions and notes here, but I want to just ask you, is there any other piece of advice that you want to give people or anything that we didn't cover from the book that you want people to know? You know, maybe there's just an invitation, which is so I get, I've been asked a bunch of people, so where do I start with this whole idea of taming my advice monster? Yeah. Because people like the metaphor, but they're like, I don't know what to do with it. And one of the things that it's not available yet, but it will be available after the book launches on February 29th. There's a short questionnaire that we put together, which is like, okay, so what's your advice monster? This is like 21 questions. So it's like five minutes. It's not meant to be rigorously based in science, but it does kind of push you down a couple of directions to say, which one feels strongest for you? Is it tell it? Is it save it? Is it control it? And once you know that, you can start building up a repertoire of tactics to help tame your advice monster. The starting point being, which is like start noticing your advice monster. Because I think there's a bunch of people listening in now who will be going, 
yeah, I kind of get this, but I don't know if I'm really much of an advice giver. I think I'm pretty good. And my bet would be you're not as good as you think you are. <laughs> so start noticing just that tendency you have to leap in and fix it and solve it. And I know you can always justify it because you're just being helpful and that's what they asked you to do and that's your job and that's your role. But just notice your advice monster. Notice what happens if you slow things down just a little bit, stay curious just a little bit longer. And that's the start, perhaps, of an interesting transformation. I'm going to go back to a question that Liz sent me to ask you. And uh, it relates to this, which is, uh, how does Michael tame his own incessant advice or creativity monster? When you lead a creative team, you've got so many things going on, so many ideas. How do you tame your own advice or creativity monster? I would answer it like this. Recently, in the last six months or so, I've given up being the CEO at Box of Crayons. And it's quite a big transformation for me because I started the company almost 20 years ago. It's been a company I've been associated with. I've got a whole bunch of collateral, you know, branded Box of Crayons. I've got a whole bunch of shirts that are kind of aligned with a Box of Crayons experience. And... I gave up the role of being CEO and stepped away from being involved in the day-to-day running of it. And part of me is celebrating that. It's like amazing. Part of me is mourning that, which is this is me trying to figure out who I am now. But what I have found, and one of the reasons we did this, was the danger of Michael's, I like to meddle, I like to have ideas, I'm a bit bored by the everyday running of stuff, getting in the way of and undermining what we're trying to do at Box of Crayons and what Shannon as the new CEO is leading in terms of change. So part of one answer to Liz's question is like, I've set up a little sandbox for me to come and create and do my own stuff where I go, right, this is where you get to play. This is where you get to be creative. This is where you get to, to do new stuff and you get to do it in a way that we put up protection. So it doesn't damage the things that you don't want it to break. Yeah, I had a feeling that's where you were going to go. Because I remember our conversation in California three weeks ago uh, yeah. when we were talking about this. And I also thought it was a fantastic story of how you found your new CEO and, and her rise to taking on that, yeah. that role. I mean, Shannon was completing a PhD in literature, but also working behind the bar of our local pizzeria as a, cause she's a, as well as turning out to be a brilliant CEO. She knows how to pour a good glass of wine as well. And I just asked her to come and do a bit of help actually marketing the coaching habit book. So a little over four years ago, and she's just blossomed, gone, you know, <laughs> come in a part-time marketer and has ended up as a full-time CEO. That's amazing. And such a great story and testament that, you know, you can find talent anywhere if they have the the talent and the capabilities, develop great talent. And then for you to be able to tame your micromanager tendencies, I hope and think, right? And and let go of the reins a little bit so that you can focus on your strength, which is creating, right? Exactly. That's awesome. Well, we appreciate... Uh, I certainly appreciate you taking time to come here and share uh, your stories, creativity, wisdom today. So um, for anybody listening that wants to go find out more, I know the book, The Advice Trap is coming out on February 29th. I know it's available on Amazon, probably plenty of other places. Where else do people go to follow you? Uh, you know, going to theadvicetrap.com is actually a pretty good place to go right now because leading up to the launch of the book, we've set up some pre-publication specials. So, you know, if you buy a book, believe me, I'm very grateful for that. And we've got a little giveaway for you if you buy a book. 
But if you buy two books, you get access to a kind of unique course that I'm running around a deeper dive into leadership based on humility and empathy and mindfulness. And then there are other prizes if you buy five and 10 and 100 and whatever books as well. So theadvicetrap.com and in general, mbs.works is my new website. So that's where a whole bunch of stuff will be showing up. All right, there we go. Theadvicetrap.com. Get the book by two, by five, by 10, by 100, however many you need. I know I'm going to buy at least a couple to get into that course. Uh, Michael, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for uh, coming back on the podcast. Thanks for speaking at the Talent Development Think Tank a few weeks ago. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch. That's a pleasure. Thanks, Andy. All right. Cheers. If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. Inside, we have members from companies all over the world who are working on all different things in talent development and sharing what's been working, what's been not working, and answering each other's questions so we can all get our jobs done more effectively and be more successful in our careers. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Just head on over to tdtt.us slash community, and you can use code HOTSEAT for 25% off your subscription. That's tdtt.us slash community and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know and we'll see you there. Thanks for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you got value out of this show, please subscribe, leave a review and share with your colleagues and friends. We want to spread the word and add as much value to the talent development community as possible. And we need your help. As always, you can find more information and connect with me at talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Take care.